Good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Genesis chapter 25. We're backing up the train a little bit. We were in 26 last week. Genesis 25, as we look into uh, the life of Jacob and Esau for the first time uh, this morning. So when you think about what a healthy church looks like, uh, there are a lot of things that come to mind, and not the least of which are births. A healthy church is always going to have new births, uh, both physically and uh, spiritually. You're going to have both in a healthy church, and, uh, they, but they all come with struggle. Uh, can I get an amen from all you women that have had children? One of our couples, actually, uh, in this very service, uh, having had multiple heartbreaking miscarriages, uh, gave birth to a little girl this last week, and she's in church for the first time right over there. Rex and Caleb, stand up over there, would you please? There we go. Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We don't always recognize people having babies here, but that's a pretty big deal. They're all big deals, I realize. But when you suffer uh, a miscarriage, you also suffer in so many other ways, and many of you know that. Uh, the church will suffer from time to time spiritual miscarriages. That, that's, a, that's an individual who looks to be born into God's family, but really isn't. They really haven't trusted Jesus. There's, no, there's nothing to back up the profession, uh, so to speak. But then there are those who are, as Jesus said, born again after going through much labor, going through the birth canal, so to speak, spiritually speaking. They, they count the cost of the, they recognize their sin. They look at the love of God in Christ Jesus and they place their faith in him, and they're genuinely saved. And it's all through the struggle. I just met with a young lady just the other day uh, who's been coming to our church, and she's, she's in the spiritual birth canal right now. She's not born again, but she's wrestling through that. And some of you can probably relate to that. But the struggle that some of you are having right now has to do with the, your struggle with just the ways of God. Does anybody struggle with the ways of God here? Why he does one thing and doesn't do another? Why he chooses to clearly save someone and, then, and not save someone else? Why he would choose to use someone that you might deem unusable and then pass over somebody that you think is just so retrofit for his kingdom? God doesn't have to do things the way you think he ought to do them. Have you figured that out yet? Isaiah put it like this. He said, God says through Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. And the story of Jacob and Esau, it's a story of struggle, both inside and outside. It's a struggle within, literally and spiritually. And with so many who, uh, who struggle, even in our own midst, to get, to get pregnant. I mean, Isaac and Rebecca waited 20 years. If the, the text that we're in tells us Isaac was 60 years old before he had his twins, Jacob and Esau. In fact, I'm left wondering if he was thinking that he might suffer the same fate as his father Abraham, waiting all that time. And so, so much struggle 
In fact, let's look at the text, chapter 25, and we're going to jump right into verse 21, where it says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And children, the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And she went to inquire before the Lord. So 20 years, Isaac has been praying that God, he's been in this waiting game, praying for God to come through, and he does, he does it exceedingly abundantly, gives him twins. I can still remember when my son called me up a few years ago. I was in California in a bookstore, and my son calls me up. One of my sons calls me up and says, Dad, I said, yeah, what's, what's going on, Josh? He says, uh, you sitting down? I said, do I need to? Twins, Dad, twins. And they would come into this world through struggling. They would come early. They would, an extended hospital stay and all of that. But these twins, these twins would struggle within the womb. In fact, the word struggle there in the text, it's it's an unusual Hebrew word. means to crush or to smash. I mean, it's so unusual. It wasn't the normal tossing that somebody bearing twins would have. In fact, fact, look at... uh, Uh, Look how uh, Eugene Peterson translates this text. He says, Isaac prayed hard to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. God answered his prayer. Rebecca became pregnant, but the children tumbled and kicked inside her so much that she said, if this is the way it's going to be, why go on living? And that literally captures the idea of the Hebrew here. She went to God to find out what was going on. God told her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples butting heads while still in the body, in your body. One people will overpower the other. The older will serve the younger. Well, that'd give you, <laughs> that'd give you something to chew on, wouldn't it? If you're Rebecca, God, using his divine ultrasound, reveals what would portend these two boys that are literally duking it out in a battle royale within the womb. And so she, I mean, I I try to imagine Rebecca, if, you know, her friends are coming to her and saying, have you thought about names for the boys? She's saying, are you kidding me? After I've heard from God, I've got, I've got too much to think about. I can't think about names. I'll just probably name them something, you know, when they're born. I mean, I mean, how else do you explain what happens here and, and how she names these kids? Look at it. It says uh, in verse 24, it says, Her days were given, days to give birth were completed. Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was hairy, a hairy cloak, so she named him Harry. That's what Esau means. (laughs) Afterward, his brother came out with, with his hand holding Esau's heel, so she named him Heel Grabber. That's what Jacob means. So that's exactly what happened. And, I, and, and realizing Jacob's, uh, Jacob, would he, his name would eventually become synonymous with his scheming, his conniving, and his deception. He would pay for that. But for now, it's simply associated with his birth. That's it. Verse 27. It, there's sort of a jump ahead in time now. The boys are are a little older, they're at least in their late teens, we're told when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents 
Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Wonderful. Just the way you want a family. Favoritism rife within it. But you see here, Esau is a macho man. He's rough. He's tough. He's an outdoorsman. You'd smell him before you saw him. He's dad's favorite. What's not to love about oh, Esau? Jacob, he's a tenderfoot. He's a mommy's boy. He's domesticated. Interestingly, look at the word used to describe him. It's the word quiet. See it there? Which makes you wonder, and you don't have to wonder much because you keep following, you find out it's true. He is completely opposite of Esau. When we were told that we were going to have twins in our family, we found out they're totally identical. And if you've met our son Josh's boys, they are like identical. I mean, so much so here just the other day, uh, their mom dropped off the kids uh, for a Bible study. and She was kind of running late, so she dropped the kids off in the nursery for the Bible study and forgot to give them their names. So they didn't know which one was Kai and which one was Kale. And so Pastor Brad was in there. He looked around and goes, Kai. Kai turned around and goes, put a name tag on him. That's how they figured out their names. <laughs> Pretty smart, Brad. Good job. You would not have had a problem figuring these two guys out. They were fraternal twins. They couldn't have looked more different. And they certainly couldn't have acted more differently as well. They're different in fact, the word quiet referring to Jacob refers to something the Hebrew word means to be solid, means to be sound, means to be level-headed. It conveys the idea of somebody who's introspective and smart and level-headed and perhaps even self-reliant, which was his problem later on. There's a lot of stuff going on in this passage. The favoritism I've already referred to. But indulge me for a couple of moments as I address the whole business of personalities. And in particular, those of you who are introverts. How many of you would acknowledge you're an introvert? Why? There's only four hands. No introvert wants to raise their hand, right? <laughs> a lot of you did, I realize. The world doesn't respect you introverts. God wired so, but they should. Susan Cain has written a book that I've been reading. It's simply called, same as the word here, Quiet. I bought the book because I thought it'd do me some good. But it really wasn't really referring to, uh, it wasn't what I thought it would be. I thought it would be a challenge for me to, to find more quiet in my life. R rather, it is a book on what it means, how the world runs on so many who are introspective, who are introverts. She writes, one third of... To half of Americans are introverts. Introversion, along with its cousins, sensitivity, seriousness, and shyness, is now a second-class personality trait, somewhere between a disappointment and a pathology. If you're an introvert, you also know that the bias against quiet can cause deep psychic pain. As a child, you might have overheard your parents apologize for your shyness. Why can't you be more like the Kennedy boys? Or at school, you might have been prodded to, quote, come out of your shell, unquote. That noxious expression which fails to appreciate that some animals actually carry shells with them wherever they go. She points out that the very word personality is only a couple of hundred years old. In fact, 300 years ago, no one used it. And all of this 
And the extroverts go into the front of the line. Everybody, every introvert needs to learn to be an extrovert is what gave birth to all of these motivational speakers like Tony Robbins, you know, and his legion of ex, ex, uh, extroverts showing introverts how to come out of your shell, unleash the power within. How about shut up? What a load of crap. Kane goes on to say that she and her friend went to Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's church, and her friend concluded, quote, evangelism has taken, or rather evangelicalism has taken the extrovert ideal to its logical extreme. If you don't love Jesus out loud, then it must not be real love, unquote. Now, I don't think you need to love Jesus out loud to show him that you really love him. But if you're struggling within to love Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert, you're not going to show it much at all. Jacob was an introvert. He was not an extrovert, but God chose him. He would struggle in and out of the womb. And his greatest struggle, like so many of yours, would be within, in his heart. Introvert or extrovert, the struggle to live by your own wits is always in front of you, isn't it? The struggle to take matters into your own hands, well, because doggone it, you can and you won't be blessed. Back to the story. They're even older now, probably in their 20s. Verse 29 says, once when Jacob was cooking stew. I told you he was a homeboy. He's in the kitchen. Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his his name is called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. I mean, there's a good idea. How about your birthright for a cup of soup? Esau's, and this, this reveals Esau's emptiness. He says, I'm about to die. What, what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. He, that's not enough. He wants to get it in writing, more or less, or verbally a swearing. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Strong words, aren't they? Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Esau soup, so irresistible you'll give up your future for it. Don't laugh, because that's what some of you are doing right now. Some of you were raised in Christian homes, and you were given a glorious birthright to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're selling it for a bowl of soup. You're giving it away for nothing. You're emphasizing everything else but the gospel. You're tough, you're like Esau, tough on the outside, but you're a wussy on the inside. And I've met my share of Esau's. 
All the externals say Jesus, and all the internals say junk. I just read this morning in my devotions where Jesus in, in Mark 10, is, he's, it's the Passion Week, and we, we start this all up in a week heading toward Easter. And Mark 10, he's walking into Jerusalem, and he sees a fig tree. This is the only time Jesus ever curses anything. He sees a fig tree. It's in full leaf. And by fig trees in Bible times, and even now, same thing, it's a nature thing, they act, the figs come with the leaves, or and sometimes they even precede the leaves. So the idea is, the assumption is, when the fig leaf, the fig tree is in full leaf, you can assume there's, there's figs in the tree. And the Bible says Jesus approaches it, there are no figs. And so he curses the tree. The next day the disciples show up, it is dried from the roots on up. And this is exactly where some of you are at. You've got all the foliage, but you don't have the faith. You've got all the bells and whistles, but it's not real. You are empty. Think on this if you would. And think about the way in which you pray for yourselves and you pray for your kids and you pray for, you, for one another. How are you praying for them? Listen to how Paul told us to pray when he prayed for the Ephesians. And he said this, he says, I bow my knees before the Father that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your, say it, inner being. You want to pray for your kids? You want to pray for your marriage? You want to pray for one another? This is how you pray. This is how you pray. You're not unleashing personality power within. You are unleashing the Spirit's power within. God's power, not your power. And it's power, listen to this, it's power that will take your individually fashioned, God-given personality, introvert or extrovert, and unleash it for God's glory. Esau was an empty man. Plain and simple. He didn't have a well-run dry he had a dry well, just like some of you. You have all the externals and none of the internals. You're no, no evidence of the Spirit's work inside making his way through and his power coming out. If you have the Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, it's a struggle. How much more if you don't have him? Right? Listen to what Paul said in, uh, in Romans chapter 8. He, he puts it like this. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's good stuff. Now take a look at these haunting words about Esau, written 2,000 years later by the writer of Hebrews. And he's writing to you and me when he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. 
And by it, many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found, look at this, no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because you've, you've read this story. You've studied this before. You've read the story of Jacob and Esau, and you're thinking, what the heck? I mean, why would God choose either one of them? They're both worthless, and yes, they were. Yes, they were. So why? Why would God do why was Why does God act like this? Why doesn't he choose the people I think he should choose and reject the people I think he should reject? Well, who do you think you are, God? You need to remember, when you see the grace of God at work in some and not in others, remember, God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. Does that bother you? Oh, I know it bothers some of you. Are you kidding? It bothers me sometimes. I can remember, it was a fall day. It was a beautiful fall day, and I was having my time with God. It was several years ago now, and I was, and I, I was in Psalm 115, which I'd memorized the first verse years earlier, which says, uh, Not unto us, O Lord, uh, not unto us, but unto your name give glory for your mercy and your truth's sake. Beautiful verse, right? But I was arrested by the second verse, which says, why should the nations say, where is your God? And the psalmist answers the question. He says, our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Have you ever read that? Literally, I memorized it. Literally, within five minutes, I got a phone call from a young lady that my wife and I had led her and her husband to Christ. She'd been battling cancer for six or eight months. It was getting the best of her, and she had just gotten a death sentence from her doctor within the hour. She said, Pat, she says, I just found out that uh, I'm going to die. And I'm not worried about that because I know Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven. But, and then her, her voice started to quake and she started to cry. She said, but my dad, he's so mad right now. He's so mad. I said, what's he saying? He just said moments ago, he said, Molly, where is your God now? <laughs> I said, Molly, you tell your dad, your God is in heaven. And he does whatever he pleases, which is exactly what she did. And that's exactly what God did. He did what pleased him and took her to glory. The first thing you need to know, you, when you look and you're confused and you're befuddled and there's a struggle within, is that God is sovereign and he will do whatever he pleases him. Listen to this carefully. The sovereignty of God is either a wall you crash into or a bed you fall into. Which is it going to be? Down through the centuries and to this present hour, the sovereignty of God has been like a brick wall to some of you. You run into it. You don't get it. You're befuddled by it. The, the world, the events of the world, the circumstances of your own life then cause you to, to, to form a caricature of God. And you start to look at God as something less than he really is. Sovereign, 
over everything, whether you get it or not. He is in charge. But if you have been grace-infused by the grace of God through the gospel of God, then it's not a wall you run into. It's a bed you lay down in, and you rest. Right now, some of you are in waiting. You're waiting for that child to come or to return to God. You're waiting for the job turn around. You're, you're waiting for some situation in your life to get turned around. You're struggling within, and you're tempted to say, where is my God now? He's in heaven doing exactly what he's always done, that which pleases him. Have you ever noticed how often the heroes in the Bible are made to wait? It's all over the Bible. Abraham and Sarah, later on Rachel, Samson's parents, Hannah, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and here, Isaac and Rebekah. The heroes in the Bible are constantly told to wait as we learn to trust God. Alex Moter has said this, if the Lord is truly sovereign over all things, then the only reasonable response is to trust him. It is his omnipotence that matters, not our incompetence. When you see the grace of God at work in some and not in others, remember, God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. And remember, grace is undeserved. It goes wherever God tells it to go. There is nothing in Jacob's life that makes him better, a better choice than Esau. Let's just get that down right now, okay? There's nothing in his life that makes him a better choice than Esau, except that God would have it so. Does that bother you? Place them side by side. You wouldn't choose either one of them. Does grace define your life? Or are you one of those individuals who are constantly, even if it's secretly, comparing yourselves to others, looking at yourself as better than others? If that's your life, you are not living in the realm of grace. Because it is, as Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I what? What I am. No more, no less. Grace is undeserved. And so that's the reason why the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about God's selection process and that heavy passage in Romans 9, he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What? The order of nature does not determine the order of grace. Are you struggling within on all of this? Listen, listen how Paul how Paul put it to the uh, Corinthians. Here's how he put it to the Corinthians. He said this. He said, "For you consider your calling, brothers. Watch this. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. That's the one I choose." Not many were of noble worth. Sounds like a good idea. They'd be educated. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that, watch this, so that, so that, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why. That's why powerful stuff. Are you struggling within? 
you need to know that grace that's undeserved and goes wherever God tells it to go. Grace supersedes personalities. Introvert, extrovert, it doesn't matter. It means nothing to God. Nothing. It gives us the ability to see him, to serve him, to speak out for him, to suffer for him, and to surrender our very lives for him if he calls us to do so. That's grace. And we desperately need it. And finally, when you see the grace of God at work in some and not in others, remember, good is God's ultimate purpose, and he will use whatever means necessary to bring it about. That's what he'll do. Infertility, vastly differing personality makeups, favoritism, fleshly ambition, shallowness, even contempt for the blessing of God in one's life is all in this passage and more. But over all of that and over all of your musings, over all of your struggles within is Romans 8, 28, that God is able to make good out of trial. I know that all things work together for, say it, Good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. R. Kent Hughes does not preach like a prophet, but he writes like one. He said this, if you're offended by this story, scandalized by God's exercise of sovereign choice, it is because you don't know yourself how, how profoundly sinful you are. And you don't understand God, he says. He's not bound by our culture, self-righteous moralizing, or limited knowledge. He is king, not us. He is not tame and will not submit to the idolatrous captivity of our notions of what he should be or do. And he concludes his quote by saying, you don't understand grace. Grace is undeserved. But grace can be yours if you come to Jesus, he writes. And if you come, and when you come, you'll discover that it is all of God from beginning to end. And that is good news. God, thank you so much as we make our way to the, the table here and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. We thank you for the good news, even in the Old Testament, that you would choose Jacob. Lord, that if you would choose Jacob, that gives me hope. And Lord, I pray that everyone here would get a big, big, big picture of you. And that you would make yourself irresistible to us as well through your son, Jesus. And you would remind us, we don't have to worry about whether uh, we're chosen. We need to worry whether or not we would repent. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring repentance into our midst. If you're listening to this prayer and you're in a state of prayer right now and you would be one of those individuals who, like Esau, you're empty. You might have leaves, but you have no fruit. 
and you just, you don't have an empty well, you have a dry well. There's never been anything in it by way of God. If that's you, would you just humble your heart right now and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you trust him right now from your heart? Repent of your sin and believe the gospel that he died and rose again for you. Would you do that? So that you could participate in this sacred moment? And if you're a Christian, a real Christian, would you repent of any caricature you have of God? And would you say, God, I want to see you better than I ever have before? Big, holy, just, righteous, wise, sovereign. And I want to see you in Jesus, humble, condescending, loving, dying, and rising for me. Help us, Lord. With our struggle within, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.